Hi, I'm Adrienne, the host of She's So Cool, a female empowerment podcast. This show is for listeners who want to learn about strong and influential women. Welcome to She's So Cool, where you will hear about the life stories of female changemakers each week. Each woman's story will inspire you to embrace who you are, love yourself fiercely, and pursue your dreams. On this episode, you will learn about the struggles and successes of the aviatrix and author Amelia Earhart. Have you ever had a difficult time trying to figure out what to do with your life? Has anyone ever doubted your abilities because you're a woman? Or have you ever felt like you needed to look normal based on someone else's standards? These are all things Amelia struggled with, and I'm here to share her story so we can learn how she became one of the world's most well-known female pilots. In this episode, I will examine Amelia's journey to discovering her passion for flying, her determination to set world records, and her feminist perspective on life. Before researching for this episode, I knew that Amelia was a pilot who got lost at sea while trying to circumnavigate the globe. But that's really all I knew, so let's get into it. She was born Amelia Mary Earhart in Atchison, Kansas in 1897. She was the daughter of Amelia Amy Otis and Samuel Edwin Stanton Earhart. She had a sister named Muriel who was two and a half years younger than her. Amelia was named after her two grandmothers and often went by the nickname A.E. Growing up, Edwin always encouraged Amelia to be adventurous and her mother didn't feel the need to raise her children to be quote, nice little girls which allowed them to have the freedom to spend hours climbing trees and riding horses. Amelia published a book in 1932 titled, The Fun of It, Random Records of My Own Flying and of Women in Aviation, where she said, Unfortunately, I lived at a time when girls were still girls. Though reading was considered proper, many of my outdoor exercises were not. I was fond of basketball, bicycling, tennis, and I tried any and all strenuous games. In her youth, Amelia's family was constantly on the move. In the 2017 documentary titled Amelia, A Tale of Two Sisters, her niece, Amy Kleppner, said, My grandfather was an alcoholic, and that became more of a problem. He couldn't hold a job, which was one of the reasons they moved around a lot. To cope, Amelia threw herself into her studies. She was a serious student, and due to all the moving around, she attended six high schools prior to her senior year. She graduated from Hyde Park High School in Chicago in 1916. Throughout her childhood and adolescence, she kept a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about successful women in male-oriented careers. At this time, she was unsure what she wanted to do professionally. For a short time, she attended a junior college in Pennsylvania before leaving the program to become a volunteer in a hospital in Toronto, where she helped wounded soldiers recover from their injuries that resulted from World War I. It was in the winter of 1918 while Amelia was working with soldiers in Toronto that she became interested in airplanes. She had seen them at county fairs before, but she was exposed to them more during her time in Canada while military officers were being trained to fly. She said she would hang around planes in her spare time trying to absorb all that she could. In 1919, she enrolled as a pre-med student at Columbia University in New York. In her book, The Fun of It, she said, 
It took me only a few months to discover that I probably should not make the ideal physician. She ended her studies the next year and went to California to be with her parents. She was 23 years old with no plans and no clear idea of what her future might hold. In 1920, she attended an air show and convinced her father to ask a pilot to take her up in an airplane. According to the 2010 documentary, The Extraordinary Life of Amelia Earhart, her father thought one plane ride would be enough to convince her that flying was not for her. She went up in the plane for 10 minutes with Frank Hawks, a man who would later become a famous air racer. Amelia returned from the flight thrilled with the excitement of the speed and power of the aircraft, and it was at this point that she knew she had to fly. For historical context, the Wright brothers made their first controlled flight in 1903. And Amelia discovered her passion for flying at a time when women were beginning to demand more rights. Since aviation was a new career path that didn't have a long history of male dominance, women were forging their paths into this field. In January 1921, Amelia started taking flying lessons, which were incredibly expensive at $1 per minute. She knew she wanted to learn from a female instructor and attended lessons taught by Anita Netta Snook a woman just a year older than Amelia. To pay for flying lessons, she worked as a stenographer at a phone company, as a photographer, and as a truck driver. During these lessons, Netta would sit in the back seat, watching Amelia and correcting her by yelling the necessary instructions. When Amelia started flying, she had long hair. In the fun of it, she wrote, I had been snipping inches off my hair secretly, but I had not bobbed it lest people think me eccentric. For in 1920, it was very odd indeed for a woman to fly, and I had tried to remain as normal as possible in looks, in order to offset the usual criticism of my behavior. She kept cutting her hair until it reached the tousled bob that became her signature style. On her 25th birthday in 1922, she purchased her first plane. She paid $2,000 for the yellow secondhand Kinner Airster biplane, which she named the Canary. In the fun of it, she said, In 1922, I certainly didn't think of my flying as a means to anything but having fun. In May 1923, Amelia became the 16th woman in the world to have earned her pilot's license. When she had some financial troubles, she was forced to sell the Canary and bought a yellow two-passenger automobile, which she named the Yellow Peril. When her parents got divorced in 1924, she drove her mother from California to Boston. In the fall of 1926, she started working as a social worker at the Denison House, a community center in Boston. While at Denison House, she continued to fly in her spare time, always working to improve her skills. In 1927, a 25-year-old Charles Lindbergh became the first person to fly nonstop across the Atlantic. A woman named Amy Guest wanted to be the first woman to fly or be flown across the Atlantic, but her family objected. So she decided to sponsor the trip in hopes that they would find a girl with the, quote, right image. In 1928, Amelia received a phone call asking if she'd like to fly the Atlantic. After expressing interest, she was later interviewed by George Palmer, G.P. Putnam, who then offered to become her publicist and help her make a name for herself in aviation. On June 17, 1928, Amelia was merely a passenger on the friendship as it flew across the Atlantic from Newfoundland to Wales. The flight took 20 hours and 40 minutes, and was piloted by Wilmer Stoltz, who was paid $20,000 for flying. Lewis Gordon acted as flight mechanic, being paid $5,000 for his services. 
Even though Amelia was a licensed pilot, she was not given the chance to fly the Friendship and was not paid for her time on the plane. The only payment she received was for the royalties that resulted after writing newspaper articles about the trip. Dorothy Cochran, an employee at the National Air and Space Museum, participated in the 2017 documentary and said, Her life changed forever, and it was a dramatic moment in history. It doesn't make a lot of sense because she was only a passenger. When Amelia landed in Wales and started to receive all these accolades, she really felt like she didn't deserve it. And she vowed then that she would have to make her own flight at some point so that she could actually deserve this kind of accolade and be respected as a pilot in her own right. After the flight, Amelia referred to herself as a sack of potatoes because she believed her role as a passenger should not have made her the hero that people were making her out to be. The public began to see a likeness between Amelia and Charles Lindbergh, calling her Lady Lindy, which she detested because she wanted her success to be independent of the success of others, especially those of men. In 1929, she finished third in the Women's Air Derby, which started in Los Angeles and ended eight days later in Cleveland, Ohio. That year, she also helped form a women's pilot group called the 99s, which was named after the number of its original charter members. The group still exists today, and Amelia served as its first president. In 1931, she married her manager, publicist, and promoter, G.P. Putnam, in a private five-minute ceremony at his home. She kept her maiden name and wore the wedding band during the ceremony and never wore it again. She resisted his proposals for a long time because, as her niece put it, she really believed that marriage was a serious problem for a woman who wanted to accomplish anything on her own. She thought of it as a kind of a trap, and this is why she specified when she did marry that she was not going to give up her freedom completely. In her posthumous book, Last Flight, published in 1937, she wrote, In 1931, we married. Mostly my flying has been solo, but the preparation for it wasn't. Without my husband's help and encouragement, I could not have attempted what I have. Five years after Charles Lindbergh's famous flight, Amelia flew her red Lockheed Vega, from Canada across the Atlantic Ocean to Northern Ireland in 1932. In the fun of it, she wrote, It was clear in my mind that I was undertaking the flight because I loved flying. I chose to fly the Atlantic because I wanted to. It was, in a measure, a self-justification, approving to me and to anyone else interested that a woman with adequate experience could do it. She made history by becoming the first woman to make the solo flight across the Atlantic, a feat that had previously killed 14 people. She was originally planning to land in Paris, but experienced mechanical difficulties, strong winds, and icy conditions. The flight lasted 14 hours and 56 minutes in the air, and the only thing she consumed was a can of tomato juice, which she sipped through a straw. Prior to this accomplishment, people doubted her abilities as a pilot, but from that moment on, she was taken seriously. She received several awards, including the Distinguished Flying Cross from Congress, the Cross of Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French government, and the Gold Medal of the National Geographic Society from President Herbert Hoover. As her fame spread, she developed friendships with people in high places, including Eleanor Roosevelt, and was also able to begin financing her flights. Between 1930 and 1935, Amelia set seven women's speed and distance aviation records. In 1935, she became the first person to fly solo from Honolulu, Hawaii, to Oakland, California, making her the first woman to make a solo flight over the Pacific Ocean. 
In the mid-1930s, Amelia said, I have a feeling that there is just about one more good flight left in my system. And she was speaking about her trip around the world, which she started planning in 1936. She wanted to take a grueling route along the equator, the longest ever attempted at approximately 29,000 miles. In March 1937, she set off heading west, but as she accelerated down the runway, she lost control and the wing got damaged during takeoff. She was flying a Lockheed Electra, which had been financed by Purdue University. She had intended to carry out an extensive flight research program at Purdue after completing the flight around the world. Amelia named her Electra the Flying Laboratory, which featured two engines and was capable of flying up to 4,500 miles without refueling. After repairs were made to the aircraft, she took off for a second attempt on May 21, 1937. This time, she headed east. She was joined by Fred Noonan, who served as navigator. On July 2, 1937, Amelia and Fred embarked on what they knew would be the most dangerous part of the trip. They were to fly 2,556 miles from Leh, Papua New Guinea to Howland Island, a speck of land that is virtually hidden in the Pacific Ocean, being just over a mile long and 1,600 feet wide. Amelia wrote about this leg of the flight and said, The monoplane is weighted with gasoline and oil to capacity. Fred and I have worked very hard in the last two days repacking the plane and eliminating everything unessential. We have discarded as much personal property as we can decently get along without to travel lighter than ever before. They took an extra thousand pounds of fuel to get to Howland Island. During this flight, the Navy could hear Amelia's radio messages, but at some point she stopped being able to hear theirs. 20 hours and 14 minutes after taking off from Leh, the last confirmed message from the Electra was received by the SS Itasca a ship that was supposed to supervise the landing and refueling of the plane on Howland Island. After the Itasca lost her signal, the Coast Guard and the Navy started a sea air search that covered an area the size of Texas. The search involved more than 60 aircrafts, 9 ships, 80 islands, and 165 people, which ended up costing $4 million. It was the most expensive and intensive search in U.S. history up to that point. Sixteen days after her last radio transmission, the Navy officially listed Amelia as lost at sea, and she was declared legally dead on January 5, 1939. Before leaving for this flight, Amelia said, Please know I am quite aware of the hazards. I want to do it because I want to do it. Women must try to do the same things that men have tried. If they fail, their failure must be a challenge to others. There are many theories about what happened to Amelia. As her niece Amy put it, there are three main theories. That they just missed their objective and that they ran out of fuel and crashed and sank, which seemed to most people the most plausible and was the most popular view for quite a while. Then there were some stories that suggested she had been forced down somewhere by the Japanese. There was never really any solid evidence for this. And then there's the third theory. They flew on to Nikamororo, which was at the time called Gardner Island, and that they survived there a few days. Although there have been many different speculations about what happened to the Electra, there are no definitive answers. What we do know is that Amelia was determined to make the public see that a woman was fully equal to a man. In her early 20s, Amelia had no idea what she wanted to do with her life. 
In the 2017 documentary, Dorothy Cochran said, Amelia was always interested in studying and going to school and finding something that she wanted to do. She ended up enrolling in and dropping out of school several times because she struggled to find a career path that brought her joy. I can definitely relate to this. Although I've never dropped out of school, I have struggled to figure out what career path I should take because I want to find something that will be both financially sustainable and emotionally fulfilling. And the answer for me hasn't always been very clear. After Amelia attended an air show and took what she called her first joy hop, she became so obsessed with flying that it would consume her for the rest of her life. I'm still on my journey to discovering my life's passion, and this podcast has brought me so much purpose. It has taught me so much about myself, my life, and the positive impact that I want to have on the world. In addition to Amelia's job as a pilot, she was an associate editor for Cosmopolitan magazine, where she campaigned for the acceptance of women entering the field of aviation. She also joined Purdue University as a visiting faculty member, where she counseled women on their careers and served as a technical advisor to the Department of Aeronautics. Although flying was relatively dangerous back when Amelia began her career as an aviator, she believed that what people don't understand, they usually fear. Have you ever been afraid of what your future might hold? Or have you ever questioned your purpose in life? I think most people experience this at some point or another. And Amelia's story has taught me to embrace the things that might scare me because she believed that courage grants us peace. If she didn't have the courage to take that first 10 minute plane ride, she might not have become the legend that we now know her as. Is there something you've always wanted to do in life but haven't taken the leap? I hope you can find the courage to start taking steps today towards pursuing that dream. Growing up, Amelia was a tomboy who really didn't care whether or not boys had romantic feelings for her. She was never the type of girl who wanted to get married and start a family. Her niece, Amy, believed that Amelia didn't want to have children as they would have interfered with her career and she was a great advocate for birth control. And I think this is an important message for us to hear, as not all women want to start a family, and we need to be okay with that. Amelia believed that many married women were domestic robots, so she made sure that her marriage was based on equality and the premise that her relationship would not interfere with her career. She enjoyed flying for the sake of it, but she also set out to break records as a way to show that women were capable in the fun of it, she said, I think in the future, as women become better able to pull their own weight in all kinds of expeditions, the fact of their sex will loom less large when credit is given for accomplishment. In the 1937 book, Last Flight, one of her entries read, There was a belief that now and then women should do for themselves what men had already done, and occasionally what men have not done, thereby establishing themselves as persons and perhaps encouraging other women toward greater independence of thought and action. Some such consideration was a contributing reason for my wanting to do what I so much wanted to do. Amelia consistently attributed her personal achievements as victories for women as a whole. According to a book published in 1993 titled Still Missing, Amelia Earhart and the Search for Modern Feminism, her feminist philosophy can be boiled down to two ideas. First, that women can achieve whatever they set out to do, and second, that it should be the ability of the individual, not the sex, that counts. 
Reflecting on this, I'm lucky to say that I married a man who believes in me and the things I want to achieve in life. Regardless of your gender identity, relationship status, or sexual orientation, try to surround yourself with people who will unconditionally support you and your dreams. As we now know, Amelia was an advocate for equality in society. Walter J. Boyne wrote the foreword in Last Flight, saying, Amelia Earhart was in advance of her time by 10 years in aviation and by two generations in promoting women's rights. Susan Ware, the author of Still Missing, wrote that Amelia demonstrated that women could be autonomous human beings, could live life on their own terms, and could overcome conventional barriers. And Amelia claimed that she had a chip on her shoulder when it came to modern feminine education. This is evidenced in The Fun of It, where she wrote, It has always seemed to me that boys and girls are educated very differently. For instance, boys are usually put into woodworking classes and girls into sewing or cooking. I know many boys who should be making pies and girls who are much better fitted for manual training than domestic science. Too often, little attention is paid to individual talent. Education goes on dividing people according to their sex and putting them in little feminine or masculine pigeonholes. I believe this perspective is one of the reasons why she's still considered a feminist icon so many years after her disappearance. It's evident to me that Amelia embraced who she was, loved herself fiercely, and more than anything else, pursued her dreams. Although I'm sharing the life stories of these strong and influential women, you may notice that some details have been left out. I mention this because I want you to know that I have chosen to highlight specific parts of their stories because the content has been planned to help you reap the most benefit out of listening to this episode. If you find yourself wanting to learn more about these women, I'm planning to launch my Patreon page very soon. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at she'socoolpod at gmail.com. You can also see the show notes, sign up for email updates, and provide episode suggestions on she'socoolpod.com. And I want to thank you for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please consider telling your friends and family to listen. I want to build a community together, and you can join by following along on Instagram at She's So Cool Pod, where I post beautiful illustrations, inspiring quotes, hints about next week's episode, and more. The cover art was created by Gabrielle Bourgeois, and the music was created by Broke for Freak.